0: Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the summit. From school broadcasts, HIKI NŌ stories, community spotlights, and NOW podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii.
1: Welcome to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This series features the stories of creative and innovative educators who are influencing, motivating, and inspiring Hawaii, the nation, and the world. Now, let's hand it off to your host, Josh Rapoon.
2: Hey, everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Today we are with Micah Hirokawa, who is the head of school at Hakipuu Academy, and Derek Minakami, who is the principal at Kaneohe Elementary School. Welcome to the podcast, Micah and Derek. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> so Mika and Derek, um, we have this format that we call 10 questions mm-hmm. for. So today, instead of just one person, we've got the two of you, which is super spectacular. So we're gonna be uh, 10 questions for Micah and Derek. So, rather than a back-and-forth discussion about your respective biographies, I want to treat our listeners to your insights into what I believe are some of the complex and meta-issues of 2020 and beyond. So here we go. Question number one. Um, A recent Forbes.com article cited a study that asked Americans, what would be most helpful for a high school graduate to launch a career? 60% of the respondents chose an internship at Google. Only 40% chose a degree from Harvard. There seems to be evidence that Americans are seeing more value in on-the-job experience than getting a college degree. My question is why? And maybe we can also, along the way, contextualize this to Hawaii. So, Micah, why don't we start with you? You know, I think what's
3: interesting about that study is that Today, I think so often the schools are kind of managed and and instruction is put forward in a way that goes back to the industrial revolution, where we're trying to push out as many people as possible. But if we look at the devices in our hands, um, you can see it's very specific type of things that people are into. Um, very few people wear a watch anymore, unless it's an Apple watch, because mm-hmm. it only has one function. And so I feel like in today's society, we've gone from generalization to specialization. And I think um, in that, it's following students' passions. And I think that that's what um, the global marketplace is really looking for, is looking for specialization versus generalization. And we're playing catch-up in that game.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And so parents are starting to figure out that the process of success or the pathway to success is maybe more towards on the job and less towards a specific specialized pathway in college. Derek, what do you think about that?
4: I I agree with Mike and I think there's a sense of immediacy, especially for um, the generation of students that are coming through our schools. When you think about the the issues that our community is facing, whether it's like sea level rise and um, the shrinking beaches and beachfront properties that they were going to be facing in the near future, the food insecurity that we face as a, as a island state. Um, I think going through your core classes of learning math or language arts or what have you um, in a very Western traditional sense, it doesn't necessarily connect to what we need now to solve those problems. And I think that's what we're seeing in terms of people's motivations.
2: So when, when parents are responding or when anybody in the community is responding Mm -hmm. to a survey like this, like, are, are there, are there signals being sent to you as, as you know, head of school, as principal of a school that you're picking up on? Um, what, what does that feel like to be begin to receive those kinds of signals?
3: You know, I think, um, what's interesting is, is it's the parents are playing catch-up game. I think the adults are playing catch-up game in this, in this world that we're in, I really think that um, it's our younger generation, it's our students that are really understanding. And I think one of the, the um, one of the things that really bothers me a lot is um, when I go to um, conferences and and people say, you know, how do we prepare our students for jobs that don't exist, you know, jobs for tomorrow? But you know. Um, What I've come to find out is those jobs do exist. (laughs) It's not the jobs of tomorrow. They are literally the jobs of today. Right. And and I think as grownups, we're really playing catch-up game to that. And um, I think um, the idea of internships, students wanting to specialize in something very, very specific, and it's because they're looking at very, very specific problems in this world, Mm -hmm.
2: So I think we have a very meaningful generation right now. Derek, related question: From your vantage point as a principal of an elementary school, it's not too early to begin to think about these issues. I think it would be tempting for an elementary school principal or leader to kick the can down the road and say, "That's not. This is not of our concern." I think that when we think about, or
4: especially coming from a high school, you know, being a high school teacher, I, I can see where my kids are heading, my students and knowing what they will need to prepare them, knowing what um, is gonna drive them towards that love of learning, we need to expose them. We need to provide them with varied experiences and doing what we've always done is Mm -hmm. not enough.
2: Mm -hmm. So question number two uh, for you, Derek, and you, Micah. Um, Recently, I read an op-ed piece by a New York Times columnist, David Brooks, Um, who's actually on the conservative side so it's not a liberal conservative thing he's Mm -hmm. he writes for the new york times and his column was titled quote this is how scandinavia got great Mm -hmm. Um, brooks notes that scandinavian countries got it right when they focused as entire countries on educating the whole person or the whole child Um, quote they realized that they were going to have to make lifelong learning a part of the natural fabric of society meaning the complete moral, emotional, electu- intellectual, and civic transformation of the person. So my, my question is, what are you doing at your two schools, at Hakipuu and at Kaneohe Elementary, um, to move away from the American model of specialized skill and knowledge sets and towards producing whole children with a sense of human interconnectedness?
4: Sure, so one of the things that we're doing is we have an experimental program in our fourth, fifth, and sixth grade um, grade levels called our Innovation Academy. And there it's highly place based, it's culture based. We're trying to integrate as much of the core content within these varied experiences. We, on a weekly basis, we visit different sites in, in Kaneohe and partner with them, whether it's um, Wakulolo um, Loko'ia or um, Luluku Farms um, or with um, Papahana. Um, and Fishbund, yeah. Right. Yep. Or um, Dalo'i up there and, and, yeah. oh, and trying yeah, to, yeah. Right. Um, immerse students in these experiences where they're giving back to their communities. They're seeing the immediate relevance of their learning Mm. um, and then understanding that the things that they're learning within the core content has applications, has relevance. Mm. And so that's what we're trying to do to inspire them to love learning, but also to, to try and expose them to many different things
2: that may help them to build a passion for something that they can pursue later. So, Derek, it sounds like instead of the kid coming to school and being at school all day long, it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of like an extraction from the community, mm-hmm. and then they get put back into the community again, you're moving school back to the community and making it more of a of a bridge that the two exist together. They have to exist together.
4: Definitely. I, the way I see it is we're part of an ahupua'a, um, a modern ahupua'a.
2: Which just, for our radio listeners mm-hmm. is a land division, just so that everybody knows what we're talking about. Yeah, right.
4: And it's more than a land division; that is actually a system in which we there's an interdependence between all of the components within the community. Mm-hmm. And so, um, traditionally, you had you know um, the water that flows from the mountain, Malka you know, down to the ocean, and along the way, there's agricultural, there's um, there's farming, there's aquaponics, you know, um, that feed in and, and build into the community. And the school is just a part of that the way I see it. And so mm-hmm. as we, we're, it's not so much that we're a hub, we're just along that pathway of the
3: stream that, that flows from mountain to ocean. Right. Yeah.
2: Micah, at Hakipuu,
3: what about yeah, the whole so child? At Hakipuu um, Academy, there's there's a lot of different things that are um, incorporate to developing the whole child as far as them getting experiences, but for at least within my vision as the leader of the school, I think it's really important that we hit the pause button on practically all of the different activities that we might do as a school. My main focus is that every single teacher is involved in a conversation. That's the most important thing, that we are getting to a really deep place with each student outside of academics, outside of the hustle and bustle of school, and we're learning about their likes, their dislikes, their passions. And I think sometimes um, we're focused on giving an experience, but yet we're not really taking the time to really be educated as educators Mm -hmm. on who and what these children are made up of, what they're passionate of. Um, Dr. Young Zhao, he really hit me in in a keynote of his where he said, we have to identify what comes easily to them and what comes passionate to them, and that is a career. And if they're ever put in a place that they're doing something that's just easy for them, but yet they're not passionate about it, that's just a job, mm-hmm. you know. And so really trying to do our research first with each child and then customizing what we do and how we take them and where we go, which route, left, right, center, mm-hmm. really, really is a huge part of understanding the whole child. So I really like to hit the stop button, you know? And so first and foremost, it's the pico or in Hawaiian would be the center. What is the center that's grounding each of these kids? And sometimes we say, you know, like in a middle school setting, well, they, they're just figuring that out. I think that's also a cop-out in the sense that there is something unique that they do know and that does
2: identify them mm. as who they are. Micah and Derek, you guys know that um, there are numerous studies and uh, that have shown that the success of a child is um, supremely dependent on a, a trusting relationship with an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like, Micah, that's what you're referencing, is kind of
3: exactly. let's
2: make sure that that's happening before we do all the other stuff. Sure. Right. And Definitely. Derek, that's happening at your school as well and connecting them with the community?
4: Definitely. you know, And um, one of the key components of that Innovation Academy is using restorative justice practices, Mm. uh, where we do circle every morning and every afternoon where kids can do a check-in and they can start to build that empathy empathy with one another to know where each is coming coming from for that day and starting to build their relationships with the teachers, but also we invite the families in as well so that
2: families know that they also can be connected to the school in that way. Right. Wow, super interesting. Okay, so question number three. Um, A 2013 survey in the United States found 93% of employers believe a candidate's demonstrated capacity to think critically, communicate clearly, and solve complex problems is more important than their undergraduate major. In the past few years, uh, social commentators have argued that a lack of critical thinking is endangering our civil society. Mm -hmm. So what conversations are you having with fellow education leaders about this? What what is the role of the elementary school and in your case more than the elementary school um, in developing or in the development of critical thinking and complex problem solving and how how does K-12 in total become a consistent and seamless process of guidance towards critical thinking the, those kinds of skills and abilities? Micah let's start with you.
3: So um, I think it's I think the idea that um, students first of all, um, that there is this lack of critical thinking in our world, <laughs> I kind of think it's a, a bit inaccurate, <laughs> even yeah. though' I'm, I'm not I'm not the one doing the study, but I do think that our students um, do think critically about many, many things they are just not quite thinking critically about the things that adults are thinking about or that adults think they should There's be thinking about. there. Right? Yeah, there is. But I think it, the skill itself of critically thinking um, is something that um, uh, definitely a high schooler um, has with their friends and their peers, their social groups, um, within their relationships with um, boys and girls, <laughs> mm-hmm. they, they know how to think critically but their ability to focus that um, um, on something specific is something that we need to continue to help our students refine. And I think the ability for us to, once again, I hope I don't sound like a broken record, but I think it's a guiding philosophy for every school. I mean, at least it should be and hearing what Derek's sharing right now is that as we begin to identify um, what students are really passionate about, then we can really focus on um, building those um, skills in thinking critically. Mm-hmm. But I think often um, if we're not focused on that, um, then it'd be very difficult to teach a student to think very critically about something that um, either wasn't relevant mm-hmm. to the time. Mm-hmm. For example, the big fight about cell phones, right? Do we ban them from school or are they, are Do we normalize them? Because they're not going anywhere, right? Right, And so um, by normalizing and becoming more one with what is happening here in Hawaii, in the world, global society, I think that really helps us to develop um, deeper critical reflections with our students.
2: Hmm. Derek, what do you think about the idea that students are, in fact, thinking critically, but it's just they're not (laughs) thinking critically about the things that we adults are thinking critically about?
4: I think there's truth to that, and I'm you know, um, i going to reframe it a little bit because I think that um, this issue about how students learn in the classroom is really about how do we model that, right? So we can't ask students to be lifelong learners if we ourselves are not lifelong learners ourselves and demonstrate that. We can't ask students to be creative thinkers and critical thinkers, and I think the creativity part is actually just as, if not more important in that. Um, if we're not being creative or being, you know, critical thinkers ourselves. And I I like what Micah said earlier about, you know, we shouldn't be just doing projects for just project sake and same thing. We shouldn't be innovating just because, you know, innovation is what's in now. It it really is. Are we trying to do things that's making things better? It's an improvement on the system or the, the practices that we have. And I think too often we limit ourselves to what was done before. And you know, coming off of No Child Left Behind, we had a generation of educators who were told that what they're doing is not good enough, they need this scripted, scientifically-based, evidence-based curriculum, and you don't deviate from that, you teach it with fidelity. Mm-hmm. And as a result, a lot of the creativity got squeezed out of the educational field. Mm-hmm. And so we're having to rebuild that, and we're having people to um, trust themselves and to think of things from a different perspective. I just had a conversation with one of my language arts teachers and she was, um, we we're talking about universal design for learning and giving students the opportunity to represent their work in different ways. And she said, well, if the standard is writing, shouldn't we just, what is different from a five paragraph essay? And I said, well, where in the world of work or in careers, do you have to write a five paragraph essay? <laughs> you know, Are there other ways that we can get kids to write that will then satisfy that standard. And so she took it back to her kids and she asked, okay, what are the different ways you wanna represent? And they came up with a plethora of Mm. ways and she was blown away by just the creativity. And of Mm. course, one kid said, can I still write an essay? (laughs) Just fine, yeah. Yeah,
2: exactly, that's awesome. Okay, so question number four. Mm -hmm. Um, Recently I read an article, and this is a hard subject for me, I I get a little wound up about this. (laughs) Um, Recently I read an an article in, in Psychology Today that almost made me choke up with tears, in all honesty. Um, It got me pretty angry, in all honesty. Um, In the article, several points were made, so I'll ask you about them and see what you think. The research seems to be pretty clear. Academic training, meaning seat time, into kindergarten has no long-term benefit. In fact, it may cause long-term harm. Kindergarten teachers, and I imagine elementary teachers possibly in general, are leaving the profession because top-down policies around academic learning are harming kids. Um, And there was, in this article, a number of testimonials by teachers who were saying goodbye to the profession because they were just so fed up with how much they were being scripted and what they were doing and what the kids were being forced to do and the joy of learning was gone. So why do we continue on this trend of depriving little, sorry, wound up question. Why do we continue on this trend of depriving little children of play and joyful group activities from which they learn so much and and subjecting them oftentimes to ever more meaningless, shallow, quote unquote, academic work from which they seem to learn so little? Derek, I'll start with you.
4: That saddens me as well. And I think, you know, going back to what I mentioned before about No Child Left Behind and um, high stakes testing in the era, thinking that we got to make every minute count and making every minute count means academic work. And um, I also read a, an article that I brought forward to my kindergarten teachers which, um, which stated that actually children of that age need nap time. They need time to, to um, break away from that constant learning because they need that time to reflect to rebuild to regroup and if you don't provide that time actually retention goes down right and so you know i think we're doing things because we think it makes sense but doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually going to achieve something mm-hmm. and then i think the other thing we have to ask ourselves what are the measures of, of success really that we're looking at and for us it has to be more than just being able to read or write or or, or do math but also is it building a love of learning that's gonna sustain them throughout their life? Is it is it gonna build into their creativity, which I think play and problem solving does, You know, through play um, builds. And so we have to incorporate more and more of those opportunities and not just do worksheets because that really is killing the joy of learning for kids.
2: Mike, I'm gonna put you on the hot seat. Let's say that you have a friend or a colleague who teaches at another school, a kindergarten teacher, and you're in your position as head of school at Hākīpūʻu Academy, and she tells you that she's considering leaving uh, the profession and leaving kindergarten because of this issue of seat time. How, how, how would you respond to that? What would you say? In what ways might you counsel this person?
3: Well, I think ultimately if, um, if this were my school um, and she was leaving, I don't think she would be leaving because That wouldn't be an issue at my school right (laughs) Uh, right off the bat. Um, But if that was the case, I would actually counsel her with just a a brief um, personal experience. See, I actually was working in business management before I became a teacher. I didn't have any desire to be a teacher. Um, I was um, a marketing director, and um, this is what I did. And I played music at night because my dad was a Hawaiian music entertainer. And I was teaching private music lessons at night just to make ends meet. And um, it was actually um, a teacher from Le Academy said to me, hey, our music teachers no longer there in the preschool. Would you ever wanna come and teach preschool music? We just need someone to cover for a little while. And um, I remember saying, you know, I don't really know what I wanna do with my life at this point. And so I went to the interview and I met this lady. Her name was Francoise Aquina. And she stands about five foot nothing. But in my eyes, she's about 20 feet tall. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to an interview. She wanted me to do a sample lesson and there were about 15 kindergartners there in their summer school class. And I remember that was the most terrified I had ever felt, Mm -hmm. standing in the doorway looking at these 15 kindergartners. And I remember turning around, looking at Francois and saying, I can't do this. There's no way I can be a teacher. And she grabbed me by the arm. And if anyone that knows her, she's just, you know, she's that type of person that, you know, can stop a moving train. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she said, All you have to do is play with them. Mm. That's the most important thing. Wow. Everything we learn in life comes from play because play is joyous, mm. right? And so I looked at her drew on her strength, walked in there, and I just played with the kids. I left my marketing job, which was paying a ton more, and went to a 10-hour-a-week um, part-time job teaching three- and four-year-olds, five-year-olds um, preschool music. Um, it was from that moment on that I knew that I wanted to be an education. I knew I wanted to be an educator. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make a big difference. So the idea that kindergarten and early childhood education is not being valued as something substantial. Um, they need to sit for about two minutes with Francoise Aquina yeah. and, and, and look in her eyes and have her say, play, mm, yeah. play is so important. And the, the lessons we learn from that are so grounding for the rest of our lives. And it was for me, I was a preschooler in her program. Mm. Right
2: and it, it became a mission for me as an educator. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Micah. So question number five. Um, Micah, you founded and owned for 10 years a private research company that specialized in learning differences. Um, this seems like a wonderful jumping off point to talk about such differences and, and how we treat them in today's education culture. So this is really for, for both of you. What did you learn in those 10 years about learning differences, and how have you applied that research in your work as an educator and school leader? And Derek, I would love to know about how Kanoe Elementary approaches learning differences, and what high points can you share with us today? So, Micah, we'll start with you. You know, um, I'm working at
3: um, Hakipu Academy, and I've had the opportunity to work at some really great schools now. Um, One of the things that really inspired me and kind of pulled all of my research together was the idea of Getting to work at um, Hanhuli School, uh, it's a progressive education school. And while I was there, I really took the time to look at John Dewey, Maria Montessori, Rudolf Steiner, and what I've learned about learning differences is that they're not so different. Um, that many of us are um, not struggling, but trying to find how to best use our abilities that function differently than others. Mm-hmm. And so what I have done is continually, once again, broken record, hit the pause button. And, and I've asked people, at least within my own faculty and staff, to take the time to look through many different lenses at our students. Um, why are they acting the way they're acting? Why do they behave the way they're behaving? And are we able to identify these differences as strengths versus disabilities? Mm. And I think as soon as we start to change that lens and we start to really think about what are the strengths affiliated with what they're doing? For example, ADHD, the ability to multitask at a very fast rate. Mm. Are we able to identify that? Or um, dyslexia, the ability to have um, massive spatial abilities being able to move and organize. Mm -hmm. Are we able to identify the abilities attached with these these things that we so call as disabilities, mm. right?
2: And put them into application and in put the them into application. Some relevant that's learning. exactly right. Right. Wow, that's awesome, Derek. Learning differences at Kanoe Elementary. Sure. So I
4: think when I think about learning differences, it's not just how you learn, but also why or what motivates you to learn. Right. And so I mentioned about our Innovation Academy, and although um, the kids who are in it, you know, they've told me that you know before I didn't like school, I hated school, and now I love learning. But I've also had kids in there who just said, Ah this is not for me, you know, which is fine. Um, and so I think what we're trying to do is figure out, you know, how do we reach each kid? How do we tap into the passions that they have and um, and build that level of learning. I think about Joe Bowler and, and Banhar Yeep who's the um, the father of, of Singapore math and they talk about having math talks where kids Um, are introduced to a problem that they say has a low floor and a high ceiling. In other words, you can solve that problem using the most rudimentary techniques, whether it's um, using counters or fingers uh, to being very abstract. And all of those methods are valued. Mm -hmm. And you have a conversation so kids can learn the strategies from each other and see, okay, what is the most efficient way or what is the most appealing way to solve this problem? And I think having those conversations those conversations with, with students, giving the opportunity to honor the different approaches that they have, I think is really important because there are going to be differences and we don't want to erase that. In fact, we want to honor those and, and celebrate those differences
2: mm-hmm. so that students can learn um, and bec- become a community of learners. So in a way, Derek, it sort of circles back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that if there is for every child in a school, if there's a trusting adult mm-hmm. uh, who that child can turn to and who the child can you know, be vulnerable with, and that adult gets to know that child, then the, the d- prime directive becomes that the adults are talking to each other about the kids, and that there's an opportunity to do that so that there's a collective intelligence that grows about the kids right. in general, but also the kids individually. Okay, I There's one thing, I, it,
4: I don't know why it always gets to me, but when we talk about if every kid had at least one adult, you know, it when I was in high school back at Kailua High, that was our goal when we created our... our um, transition program we wanted every kid to have at least one trusted adult that they felt connected to and in you know 20 years later i'm thinking about it and that was such a low bar mm. there needs to be more than more one than adult one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah you know if a kid goes has six classes a day in high school and they only have one adult how sad is that right you know it, every adult that they see should be someone that they trust that they connect to mm. and so i'm sorry for going off on my no, no. tangent and, and soapbox but you're right you know i think we do need to talk uh, about kids, every adult that has an investment in, in that child's education is connected to that, that child, we need to share those strategies that are working. Right. We need to see um, how we can better connect with them and form those, those trusted relationships so they can flourish. Right. You know, um, our school um, has gotten trained in PLCs at work and there's three statements that we always hark back to that we think kids need to hear every day. And um, number one is what you're learning here is important. Um, Number two is that you can do it. And number three is we're not going to give up on you even when you give up on yourself. Hmm. And I think, you know, it speaks to that
2: rigor and also speaks to the relationships are so important. Right. That's awesome, Derek. Everybody, stay with us. We're going to take a short break and come back with more questions for Derek Minakami and Micah Hirakawa. Stay with us.
3: Our specialty is providing cultural-based programming to learn technology and computer science. We are always looking for teachers, volunteers, and schools to partner with. But our programs aren't only for keiki. Heard of the Purple Prize? We're accepting applications now for Kamaka Inana, a design and venture ideation program for adults interested in creating solutions that positively impact the Pai Aina. It's about shaping the way Hawaii designs for the future. Visit us at PurpleMai'a or PurplePrize.com for more info. Also, come major is this podcast? Keep up the good work, guys. This is Toy and Amber from Entre Ed Talk. We are so excited to uplift this cool new podcast coming to you from the middle of the Pacific Ocean. What school could be in Hawaii? As always, we're super excited to support innovation and education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of these incredible educators on our own podcast, Entre Ed Talk.
0: If you're looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators from across the world, join us as we share their journey and insight. Be sure to check us out wherever you listen to podcasts at Entre Ed Talk and like, subscribe, and drop us a review today. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, I'm Tyler Kern from MarketScale, and you're listening to What School Could Be in Hawaii, a podcast partnership between MarketScale and Josh Raccoon, exploring the latest insights and thought leadership in the world of edtech. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts these days, or just head to marketscale.com, click on industries at the top of the page and scroll down to edtech. We'll see you there.
2: Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapun, and we are back with Derek and Micah. So, Derek and Micah, here's question number six. Uh, Derek, I'm going to start with you. Um, This is going to seem kind of random, but deep in your amazing resume, I located the fact that you got your Final Cut Pro certification back (laughs) in 2004. Um, This sent my brain off on a number of crazy tangents related to the value of storytelling and short films to education redesign or to for us to know more about education redesign. So to the both of you, in your years as principal at Kaneohe Elementary School and Micah, in your first year as head of school at Hakipu Academy, in what ways are you using storytelling to share with the larger community your school design process? What stories are you intentionally pushing out to the larger community and what technologies are you using to do it? Derek, we'll start with you. Thanks. I'll-
4: so one of the, my mentors, Pono Shim, um, talks about the power of storytelling and storytelling is as, as medicine. And actually, there's a lot of brain research that shows that when we um, tell a story that engages your audience, um, it re- releases you know, chemicals within your brain that not only builds empathy, but also that call to, ac- to action. And so um, in thinking about that, we're looking at how do we use storytelling to um, like I mentioned before circle you know telling stories within um, circle to to be able to connect to one another to build that empathy uh, to try and avert kids from bullying other kids for example Um, same thing when we are um, asking for grants so right now we're looking at how do we make uh, Kanyohe Elementary a more trauma informed school Mm -hmm. and um, in speaking to funders we're telling the stories of kids who are um, facing very traumatic situations and how we're responding as a school and, and how that can get better. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the ways in which we're engaging the public that we're trying to bring the community in so they understand you know, um, what our kids are going through and how we can help them.
2: Derek, you use Twitter. You mm-hmm. are a, a pretty prodigious, prodigious, well, I can't say the word, <laughs> prolific uh, tweeter. In what ways does Twitter serve your interests as a school principal and getting out the stories of what's happening at your school. You know, it, it's funny because when I initially got into Twitter, I thought that it would be a way to communicate to my
4: parents. And for the longest time I had maybe like five followers and just one, <laughs> one of which was a parent. Uh, so shout out to Greg. Thank you for being one of my first followers. <laughs> but you know, it, um, I found that for me, Instagram actually serves a, a, a better Medium for connecting with my parents and and our community and telling the stories there Mm. Uh, For example, we just had a big unveiling of a melee murals project that we uh, did at our school yesterday Um, And it just brought a lot of parents in to come and see and and connect in that way Mm. for Twitter I think it's been more of a connector to other educators, right and to be able to expand that network of people who are um, not just like-minded but also who have different perspectives that really challenge my own and, mm. it, and it help, helps me to grow my own thinking as an educator. Mm.
2: I've noticed an explosion of Twitter accounts across our public, private, and charter schools over the last three years yeah. in Hawaii. And it really helps to get uh, to get one informed about what's happening in, in all the different areas. Micah, at Hakipu Academy, what about this business of storytelling? How are you going about doing that?
3: Yeah, I think, um, I think there's a couple of things. Um, I think it depends where you're on the evolution of your story itself. Hockey Poo Academy, um, is this is its 19th year, and in the realm of schools, that's fairly new as far as um, the age of a school. Um, for me, um, I really think it's really important that you understand where you fit on that timeline and where those stories fit. And so eventually we would love to be um, recognized worldwide, globally, across the web, and so on. But when I first took the seat um, at this school, um, there were two stories that needed to be told. Number one, um, that there was this resource Mm -hmm. here on the Windward side. And number two, we needed to teach our students how to tell a story. And being a Hawaiian-focused charter school, it was really important that they understood the importance of mo'olelo. And um, so one of the first things that we initiated right away is this um, protocol called Manao'okala. I learned it from a good friend of mine. His name is Blair Sataraka. And it basically means the thought of the day. Mm. And students wake up. Um, they're assigned to do the thought of the day. They can do it in Hawaiian or they can do it in English. And then they then say why this is meaningful for them. And this is in our morning protocol. Um, so that story's really important that we teach students, as far as in the learning design, mm-hmm. this is how you tell a story. And the way that you teach that is by giving them the opportunities to do it. Right. Um, the second thing is, is when thinking about the school in its timeline, and because the school is so fairly new, most people either said, Oh, I know that school. Or they would say, um, Oh, what school is that? And I quickly found out that either people had one opinion of the school or they didn't know the school at all. Mm. And um, one of the things that I learned from my dad growing up, he's a Japanese businessman that owned a car, only drove it on Sundays and always caught the bus so that he could sit next to a new person wow. on the bus. And that was his marketing tactics for his, um, for his optometry business. So what I did was every day um, when I came into this role, I walked the streets of Kaneohe and I sat with people in their homes, wow. and I told them their story, but more so I listened to their stories. And a huge part of storytelling is taking the time to listen to our kūpuna, our elders, to listen to our community, and then embed ourselves in that community. Mm. And so I, I see storytelling right now, as far as our school, in, in two ways. Um, one day on Twitter, one day on Facebook, and, and so on, as we become a global but to be part of the community, to be mm-hmm. part of the community story, and then to teach our still our students how to tell their story,
2: right. not create a story, because right. they have one. Yeah. So the story of the school becomes their story as they slowly but surely learn the skill. Exactly. That's fantastic. Awesome, okay, question number seven. Derek, mm-hmm. you served as our public school race to the top STEM learning strategy and network project manager. You led a team in developing and implementing Hawaii DOE statewide STEM initiatives. Um, Here in 2020, Race to the Top has become uh, a very sensitive subject, or somewhat sensitive subject. Many contend that No Child Left Behind, and you've already referenced this already, and Race to the Top set back the joy of learning by a generation. Many contend that essential skills development was set aside for seat time teaching to test so my question is for both of you, what are your thoughts now about this? Um, and Micah, you recently moved from a progressive private elementary school to a public charter school. You know, in that context, what are your thoughts about where we've come over these last few years? So um, in my time with
4: Race to the Top, actually I was volunteering in that capacity. I was still a vice principal at the time. And um, we had some lofty goals that was written to application that were unfunded. Um, and I still believe that those goals also, um have pertinence today. Uh, reason being that one of the things that we wanted to do was to connect educators. We wanted to give them an, a forum uh, to be able to communicate with one another, to share ideas, share practices, um, elevate what we're doing in STEM education. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried a, pro- a platform, and you know it. Today it's not as relevant, that, that platform. I mean, I think um, had I been on Twitter back then, <laughs> that might have been the go-to in terms of creating that, that PLN. Um, the other thing that we tried to do at Race to the Top is to provide more um, professional development so people could see how STEM can be integrated into um, all sorts of um, content areas and, mm-hmm. and really look at cross-curricular. And I think um, that stands um, against, you know, Some of the things that that people criticize No Child Left Behind for, in the sense that we really do want to um, spark kids' passions. We want to show them that there's opportunities and and relevance for learning things, Mm -hmm. Um, and not just book work or seat work, but really looking at how do we um, do things that are going to improve our community immediately. You know, so I think all of those efforts, you know, combined, um, we didn't get... Far enough, and, I, and part of it was because it was unfunded. But I look at um, what our superintendent wants for us to do today, which is to have internships, have externships, have right. opportunities to to really connect the learning. And right. I think those are the things that
2: um, the same goals that we had with Risa thought, at least within STEM education. Mm. So in some ways, forge ahead, be brave, be bold, as she has said, Superintendent uh, Christina Kishimoto, mm-hmm. But at the same time, be aware of where we came from and what some of those things were, that were, were useful and pertinent, as you say.
4: Yeah, I think like for myself as a, as a leader, I, I um, understand that I have a very lengthy and hefty failure resume. And <laughs> the things that we tried to accomplish in Race to the Top, you know, definitely are um, chapters within my failure resume. Um, and so it's something that we can learn from and, and, and perhaps grow from. Right. So even though the intention was there, you know, the implementation um, wasn't enough. Right,
3: Micah? You know, um, it's interesting because I started off in a DOE school. Actually, my first two years was teaching at Kaneohe Elementary School. <laughs> and I actually am a graduate of Kaneohe Elementary School. And then from there, I went to Le Jordan, um, which is an IB school, International Baccalaureate. And from there up to Island Pacific Academy, then Hana which is a progressive education school. And now I'm in the charter schools. Um, So I've gotten to see the DOE, private, and charter worlds. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that just, um, I guess, frustrates me is just this idea that um, we are bridging the gap. But the resources to bridge the gap um, really um, holds that gap from being bridged as far as the amount of opportunities that the students can have in their lives. And so watching it go from the DOE um, to private schools, uh, highly funded private schools, to um, charter schools that are barely surviving. Um, and seeing all these things happen, um, I came to a really frustrating point this summer. And so I said, how do we ground ourselves as a community across all of those boards? And so I came up with an acronym, which is PICO. And as I mentioned earlier, PICO means our center, our, 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 our groundedness, our core. And so I said, Everything that we do, whether it be innovation, whether it be STEM or or whatever is next, because we know there's something next, right? Because STEM turns into STEAM and somehow it's going to turn into something else, M, that it needs to P, be purposeful. I, it needs to be intentional. There needs to be an action behind it. K, we have to keep the cakey or the kid at the center of that. And O, that we're constantly being optimistic and mm. out of the box thinking. Mm. And so... Right off the bat, I just say, if we're going to be centered as a community between DOE, between public schools, I mean, um, charter schools and private schools, um, if we can all focus on being a bit more purposeful, Mm. intentional, keeping the kids' voice or the kids at the center of that, being optimistic and out-of-the-box thinking, then I think whether STEM turns to STEAM and then turns into something else, then we can be united amongst that, and then that really begins to bridge the gap right. between these different places. And to be honest, I've had the chance to travel all over the nation. And I believe that Hawaii is not only the melting pot of diversity, but it is, it is breaking these walls down between schools. Hmm. Um, y-
2: we see it all the time happening, and that's incredible. Awesome. So perfect segue to question number nine, um, speaking of bridging gaps. So um, for our audience, our radio audience, I'm going to describe an image to you too and then I'm gonna have you comment on it, yeah? So let's imagine that there's you know, a circle that's kind of up here around 12 o'clock, and that circle is spinning clockwise about 40 miles an hour, and has been for more than 100 years. And then there's a circle down below, right around six o'clock, that's spinning counterclockwise, and yesterday it was 40 miles an hour, and today it's 140 miles an hour. It's rapidly speeding up. And the area between the two circles, if you can imagine, is sort of like a channel that you're swimming in between two islands. It's super turbulent. The winds are high. The waves are high. And what's happening is that that first circle is really the way we used to teach. And the second circle is the 21st century, which is rapidly, as Tom Friedman calls it, age of acceleration. Right. So my question is about educators who, and and, and, sorry, another metaphor, two canoes going in opposite directions and you're trying to get out of one and into the other as it goes past you in the opposite direction, you know, at 140 miles an hour and you're going 40. So my question is about how do you as school leaders help educators get through those turbulent waters as they try to get out of the 20th century and into the 21st century in terms of teaching and learning? Derek, I'll start with you. Sounds like an episode of survivor. <laughs> <laughs> in some ways, I think for many educators, it is. It yeah, and you know, I think
4: yeah. um, it's difficult. I, I think about, um, like, I had a conversation with my son this morning in preparation for the podcast, you know, and, and asking him, you know, if we could change his elementary school or his middle school where he's currently at in any way. Um what would he do? And he goes, I wouldn't change anything. It was perfect. And, you know, his elementary school is very traditional, very conservative. And I, um, I think about a lot of educators that I encounter who I think have the philosophy of it's not broken, why fix it, you know, or, you know, why are you asking us to change things? And, um, I think about, you know, where we need to go and, and, and having that vision it really is about how do we cultivate a shared vision for that future, and how do we get people to get invested in it, but that 's not enough hmm. because it also means you know how do we get people to feel like they're safe to take that risk to venture for, towards that vision and that can be really scary for people hmm. and so it's about creating that safe um, environment it's allowing them to wade in um, and though I think there is that strong sense of urgency it's also knowing that if you rush people in it's not going to do them any good if if they all drown right you know and so it's it's about how do you then temper it how do you then help them move forward um Hmm. where they feel safe and they feel like they're going to what they're doing is going to be valued and honored Hmm. and what can we keep of the the past that we're going to keep carry with us and what are the things that we're going
2: to say you know, like, Marie thank you for your service, and and leave it behind. So, Micah, in a sense, what I'm hearing from Derek is that the, the canoe passing in the opposite direction, uh, which is going ever faster, um, is not going to go by just once. It's actually going to come by repeatedly. And so if you, it's not like you're going to miss a boat. You're not going to miss an opportunity you'll never get again. You actually get to do it pretty much any time you want. What are your thoughts about this transitional space? Yeah, I...
3: Um I hate to be a person that comes on a show and keeps disagreeing, <laughs> but I, 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 um, I think the problem with your your picture that you drew is that it's from the perspective of a grown-up. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, um, I think what's happening here is um, lots of times when I speak to educators who are frustrated. Um, with how fast technology is flying by them and how fast um, the world is innovatively spinning versus the world they grew up in, um, I think that too often they're, um, if you think about that scenario, it's just them. Yeah. It's just them thinking about it. But um, if you were to talk to a kid today, maybe your son, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, In their perspective, the world is spinning at 40 miles per hour. It's not spinning at 120 miles per hour. It's spinning at 40 miles per hour. It's just from our perspective as adults that it's spinning Mm. at 120 miles per hour. And a lot of times we have the perspective, and um, I think I heard it earlier today, that um, we have the perspective that we need to be in control of this um, cyclone that is spinning at at our perception of 120 miles per hour. But it's not the case. Um, I think it, we're um, it's revolving around pride. Um, I think too often, if we say lifelong learners, I'm a lifelong learner, but I'm not. I'm not planning on learning from anyone younger than me. Mm-hmm. I'm a lifelong learner because I'm going to take a PD from someone who's much older than me who has these accolades and so on. But if we were to take a step back, um, and I think um, Melissa, you had her on your show earlier today. She said. Um, Do I give them the space and the time to figure it out on their own? Mm. And then we take the time to learn from that. Mm. Um, I think that we would see that turbine start slowing down a lot more is to be able to learn from this younger generation. My biggest example of that is if you have a problem with your cell phone, you give it to someone who's 14. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because in that moment, that cell phone is 120 miles per hour. But you give it to someone who's 14, it's at 40 miles per hour. They could just do it in two seconds. So it's normalizing that, right? Really slowing that down and accepting that it really is going at 40 miles per hour Mm -hmm. if we
2: allow our students to be the teachers. Yeah, very interesting, Micah. So question number 10, we're here at the end here. Mm -hmm. Um, So we try to end these episodes by referencing the title of Ted DentroSmith's book, What School Could Be. If I asked you, Derek and Micah, to take me somewhere on your campus where I could see what school could be, specifically, where would you take me and what would I see? Um, And um, I think maybe you don't have to roll with this if you don't want to, but to honor your resumes, um, how's about Micah? You talk about music and Derek, you talk about science. Let's start with you, Micah. Take me someplace where music would show me what school could be. Okay. Okay. So, I know
3: um, all of my faculty and staff is hoping that I talk about um, how we have this great lab program and we've got all these other things, um, but I would reference what school could be is our lunch period. <laughs> the least academic time in our school. And during this period, um, there are guitars, there are ukuleles, there are cajones out there, and there are kids who are playing music. And so part of our project-based learning component, which is the second half of our day at, at Hakipu Academy, the students go into doing projects. And many of these musicians, um, a group of them came up to me and said, "'I want my project to be on butter mochi.' Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was gonna be really easy, because was gonna, um, they were gonna do a, a PowerPoint, and this was the recipe, and I like butter mochi.' And I said, "'You are passionate about music. This is a cop-out.' And, you know, just calling them on it. And so then they decided they would do a a project on um, Hawaiian music. And I said, oh, that's great. We're a Hawaiian-focused charter school. But you know what I knew? Because I took the time to be with these students out at lunchtime, is that they were not passionate about Hawaiian music. I heard music from Maroon 5. I heard music from Metallica. I heard music from all different types of bands, jazz, every genre under the sun. And I said to them, I said, you're not going to do a project on Hawaiian music. You really need to explore the genres of music as it pertains to your passions. Mm -hmm. And so if I think about the book, um, what schools could be, schools need to be a petri dish that's cultivating passion, right? It's cultivating passion. And what better medium to explore passion than music? So you've given me the perfect example, but I do believe it applies to everything. We have a student that's doing fashion. We have a student that's doing one on car audio, it starts with passion, right. and so I think that's the best medium. Awesome, Derek.
4: So I knew you were going to ask about what schools could be, not necessarily about science. And uh, for the past couple of weeks, you know, knowing that I was coming to this podcast and thinking about what how I'd respond to that, and I read the book, and you know, um, and I think for me, it's still I'm figuring, I'm trying to figure it out. You know it, it's still something that we're we're learning and we're trying to build and we're trying to listen to students and trying to fig, um, see where it heads um, but i know that's a kappa answer so <laughs> where i would take you is actually not on our physical school campus but tululuku farms one of our partner right. um organizations within within our community and there. Uh, we will go to take a look at the lo'i, which, uh, which is the you know where we're growing the kalo, the taro, um, the awai, the, the water that feeds into it, um, the stream that runs nearby that has um, dojo and, and um, opu um, growing in it. And um, look at the ways in which students are trying to um, do deep op- observations there, use um, the knowledge that they're gaining from Uncle Mark, who's the caretaker of Luku Farms, um, and apply their science and their math and their language arts and their their social studies within that context to uh, to help him. So whether it's to get rid of the um, invasive species within the stream, the the catfish or the others that were eating the opu, uh, whether it's to try and convert energy from the awai, the stream, into um, taking the the farm off the grid um, and create electricity, or whether it's looking at how do we help the kalo to to thrive more healthily and, and get rid of um, the predators and, and, and other um, threats to their growth. You know That's the way that we're trying to um, look at how science is not taught as a separate subject, but really as something that's relevant. You know, Mickey Tomita is one of our partners through Education Incubator. She talks about just-in-time learning versus just-in-case. Right. And moving away from having to teach kids things that, oh, just in case you need this later, to we need to learn this right now because we want to solve this problem. And we want to make things better for our community. Right. And that's what the, the lens, I think, that we're trying to
2: view um, learning at our school through. Mm. Derek and Micah, thank you for your leadership in education in Hawaii today, in our public schools and in our charter schools. And thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much.
0: Welcome back to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. We are so excited to share all of the new educators for this month. So coming up next week is Whitney Aragaki, a Science and National Board Certified Teacher at Waiakea High School on Hawaii Island. Find the
1: What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. As well as at
0: MLTSinhawaii.com. Join the ongoing conversation across social media. Look for Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii on Facebook and at MLTSinhawaii on Instagram and Twitter. Tag your posts with hashtag WhatSchoolCouldBe, hashtag DeeperLearning, hashtag EdChat, and hashtag Education. Our next interviews will be recorded on Saturday, March 28th.
1: You can join us in the studio through the magic of Facebook Live. Find us
0: at the Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page. We want to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to MLTSinHawaii at gmail.com. If you love this podcast series, we would really appreciate
1: a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help us reach a
0: wider audience of innovative educators. And please feel free to share this series with colleagues, friends, and family.
1: Your host is
0: Josh Rapoon. Our podcast consultant and sound engineer is Ryan Ozawa. The editor for this episode was Marlon Utrera, under the guidance of Matthew Williams. Learn more at talkmediaproductions.com. And special thanks to Ted Dintersmith, author and education change agent. Now, off to your next epic
1: adventure. Class dismissed.